When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. With these words, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Christians in Corinth for how they are celebrating the Lord's Supper, a ritual meal that has since come to be known as the Mass, the Eucharist, or the Communion, in various Christian traditions. But what was going on at these suppers in Corinth? People drunk? People going hungry? And people being humiliated because of their poverty? This doesn't quite sound like the solemn and formal rituals that are practiced in many Christian churches today. But it is rather important to understand what was going on in the church at Corinth, because the way they were doing it actually prompted Paul to describe for them what it was that Jesus actually did when he gathered for his Last Supper with his disciples. And that is significant, because this letter, the, the first letter to the Corinthians, was likely written a few years before any of the Gospels. So what Paul wrote in this letter actually constitutes the first written account of that all-important Last Supper. What Paul wrote here had an enormous influence on almost 2,000 years of Christian tradition. So, let's try to understand what was going on there and why. What was the story of the Corinthian church's notoriously bad celebrations of the Lord's Supper? This is Retelling the Bible Episode 5.24 The Supper Before the Last In the large central courtyard of Plutarchos's house, there were four people huddled together in one corner. Plutarchos and Crispus were reclining on a large couch, while Gaius and Chloe sat nearby. The afternoon was just fading towards evening, and the slaves of Plutarchos's house had just brought out a table laden with the most excellent dinner. There was bread, olives and olive oil, figs and stuffed vine leaves, and even a leg of mutton that had been roasted to perfection. As the smell of the meat wafted towards him, 
Plutarchus gave an irritated look. Well, here we are again, he scoffed. It's five o'clock on Sunday, and where are all the church members? How many times do we have to tell them that this is when we meet? If they were true believers in our Lord Jesus, they would be here. At the end of last week's meeting, we told them that we would gather for the supper at this very hour. And yet, once again, they leave us waiting for them. Am I not an important person in this church? Am I not the patron? And do I not provide not only my own house for us to meet in, but also the greater part of the meal that we share? And yet, these people insult me and disrespect me by making me wait. It's just not right. Chloe sighed deeply. Dear brother in Christ, she said, we've been over this all before. I'm sure that all of our brothers and sisters would love to be here now, but they are dealing with things that you don't understand. The four of us, after all, are the only people in this church who don't have to work. You, Plutarchos, live off of the lands that are worked by your slaves. I live in the house my husband left to me, and Gaius and Crispus both have wealthy families. If we don't work, we still get to eat. We still have a place to sleep at night. None of the others have that security. Some of them are slaves, and they would be beaten if they left work before their master told them they could. Most of the rest are paid as day laborers, and if they don't stick around until the overseer says they can leave, they just don't get paid. Just be patient. They'll be here as soon as they can. And, by the way, almost half of the people who are members of this church just happen to be in your household, as I recall, Plutarchos. So, if they aren't here, might that not be because your own overseers haven't released them yet? And that includes, by the way, your slaves, who are even now right out there, cleaning up the kitchens. Plutarchos gave a petulant look. Well, he said, maybe if they were really committed, they would have worked harder, and they would all be done by now. Before long, the light in the courtyard began to wane, leading to Plutarchos to call for lamps to be brought and lit. As they came, Gaius leaned over to where Crispus lay. The smell of that roast is driving me mad, he whispered. 
I swear that I'm going straight over there and cutting off a mouthful. But Crispus whispered back, The meat does smell delicious. But did you see that skin of wine over there? Oh, I'd know the markings on that wineskin anywhere. That is a fine vintage. Every time I look over there, I am overcome with thirst. Ten minutes later, the wineskin was looking noticeably thinner than it had, and all three men were contentedly munching away at the mutton sandwiches that they had made. The sky was quite dark by the time the rest of the members of the little Corinthian church began to stumble into the courtyard. They were clearly very tired, as they had all worked a very long day. But they were still joyful, because one of the things that had kept them going was the thought that they would be able to come here and greet their sisters and brothers in Christ and hear some stories of Jesus and the amazing things that he had done and said. The thought of a decent shared meal, of course, had also loomed large in their thinking all day. One by one they entered. However, their joy and anticipation soon turned to confusion and disappointment. They turned their eyes to the corner of the courtyard where three men sprawled on a large couch. They were cracking jokes to each other and giggling uncontrollably. The table that stood near them held little more than a few crumbs of bread and two skins of wine that were completely flat. Chloe, a woman who was loved and revered by all, who was seen as a surrogate mother by many of them, sat nearby scowling, her emotions alternating between burning anger and deep, deep sorrow. Early the next morning, Chloe was pacing back and forth in her own house. Her secretary sat at a desk nearby. The papyrus in front of him only had four words on it, and had had for the past 15 minutes, my dear brother Paul. Chloe was having some trouble finding the words that she needed to say. Some of us are gravely concerned, she finally said, and her secretary began to write. There were indeed many things that concerned Chloe and so it was anything but a short letter. But when she came to write about the disastrous supper of the previous evening, she grew particularly animated. The three men who had consumed the food and the wine 
were all people who had been close to Paul when he had been there. In fact, Chloe was pretty sure that Paul had been the one who had baptized a couple of them. So she hardly needed to tell him that they were among the few people in the church who had any means. She didn't need to say that Plutarchus considered himself to be the patron of the church as well, which was why he so often provided the food and wine for the weekly gatherings. But, like most patrons in the empire, he also expected a great deal in return for his extraordinary generosity. So she didn't bring any of that up, but rather spoke of her great disappointment in what they had turned the supper into. When you were among us, her secretary wrote, you taught us much about the death of our Lord Jesus, and especially about his resurrection. But you did not say much about what he said and did during his life. But since you left us, Apollos and the others came and told us of how, during his life, Jesus would gather many different people to eat at his table, and it was a table that was open to everyone, even to the outcasts, the tax collectors and sinners. And so, as we have heard they had been doing in many of the other churches, we began to hold weekly suppers, where all were welcome to eat, because that seemed to be a worthy way to remember Jesus' life as well. When Plutarchus offered to provide all the food and wine for such feasts, we rejoiced at first and thanked him for his generosity. But then we began to see what he expected in return. Not only our thanks, but in many ways our allegiance and obedience. He wanted to make the rules and tell everyone what to do. And that's how we got to the place where, at a recent supper, he and a few others were full and drunk, and just about everyone else went without. When Paul received the letter from Chloe, he was indeed in a great deal of distress about how things were going in the church at Corinth. He called on a companion to write for him and began to address the problems she had raised one by one. But when it came to the question of the Lord's Supper, he did pause. It was true that Paul had taught the church little about the meal when he had been with them. To be frank, Paul knew very little about the things that Jesus had done and said during his life. Many things had been revealed to him about the meaning of Christ's death and his resurrection, but others knew more about what he had done in the flesh. Paul knew of the practice in many churches of gathering and sharing a meal as a way of honoring 
the memory of Jesus, and how he had welcomed all sorts of people to his table. He knew that it was a good practice, that, when well done, helped to bolster the unity of a church. He could also see that it was clearly not being well done in Corinth. But not really knowing much about what Jesus had said about such meals during his life, what could Paul say that would help that church in Corinth? And here is where you need to know something about Paul. Though he did consider those who had known Christ in the flesh to be his sisters and brothers in the church, he had never been inclined to go to them to get his information. Paul had had visions and experiences of the risen Christ that had taught him everything he needed to know about who Jesus was and what his resurrection meant. So Paul decided, if he was going to discover what Jesus truly desired for the Corinthians to do, he needed to seek a vision. And so Paul resolved that he would fast and he would pray and read the scriptures until such a vision came. It was only many days later, once Paul had gotten to the point, through much deprivation, where he was almost delusional, that the vision came. It came after he had been reading and meditating on the story of the time when Moses made the covenant between the people and their God with blood. He saw Christ surrounded by his followers as they gathered to eat one final meal. Once he had recovered, he summoned his companion, and the letter continued. I have received something from the Lord, and it agrees with what I also handed on to you previously, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When Chloe received the letter from Paul, she knew it would be helpful and couldn't wait for it to be read to the assembly. She particularly appreciated what Paul had said about the supper the communal meal had always had a sense of celebration to it. A celebration of the kingdom of God that Jesus had brought. But that festival spirit had 
been the very thing that had encouraged some to engage in indulgence and excess. But here, instead of directing everyone's attention to those joyful meals celebrated during Jesus' life, Paul was asking them to think instead of the Last Supper Jesus had shared with his disciples, a much more solemn occasion that might encourage some to settle down. But she particularly appreciated another point that he was making. He was stressing that Christ only took the glass of wine at the end of the meal. That would certainly be very helpful moving forward. For how would the likes of Gaius and Crispus dare to open the wineskins before all the others had arrived, when Paul was insisting that everyone had to eat before they could drink the wine of the new covenant? Oh yes, this would be very helpful. Scholars agree that the account of the Last Supper in the first letter to the Corinthians is actually the first written account, and that obviously makes it very significant. What not all scholars agree on is whether the accounts of that same supper in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are independent of the story told in 1 Corinthians. The Gospel of Mark was written about two decades after Paul wrote to Corinth, and Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. So it is quite conceivable that the writer of the Gospel of Mark could have gotten his account of the meal from Paul. Certainly, the Markan and the Corinthian accounts of the story are extremely close. It is rather significant that in his letter, Paul does not say, as he says about some other things, that this was a tradition he had received from the apostles or others who had gone before. Instead, he insists that this is something that he has received from the Lord himself. That is to say that he received it directly from Jesus by means of something like a vision. So Paul does seem to be claiming to have created this account of the supper himself, having been inspired to do so. And I just find it a little bit convenient that the account he gives us here is such a perfect response to what he says had been reported to him as going on at the suppers in Corinth. If they were having suppers that were getting out of control precisely because some people were celebrating too much and were not waiting to open the wine until everybody got there, it is convenient that Paul describes a solemn supper of remembrance where the wine is not taken until everyone has eaten. 
By the way, three of the people mentioned in my story, Gaius, Crispus, and Chloe, were actual members of the church in Corinth, who are mentioned in Paul's letter. He wrote it in response to a letter of concern that he says he received from Chloe's people. As for Gaius and Crispus, I may have been unfair to them. All that Paul says about these two men is that he baptized them, and he certainly doesn't complain that they were among those getting drunk at the supper. But somebody clearly was. Perhaps we should be glad that they were. Otherwise would we have ever received such an extraordinary account of what Jesus did on the night he was betrayed. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. It will be a very special Christmas episode. If you like this episode, why not share it and the podcast with a friend? The theme music for the podcast is Ah Duh. The mood music for this episode is Long Stroll. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.